0: There is a lot of discussion about our coins these days. Coins of the realm. Just this week, I paid for a purchase in cash. And guess what? I got change back. The cashier had to whack open a roll of coins in order to give me change. And I felt like I, (laughs) quite honestly, had hit jackpot. Whether it's the what-ifs of a coin shortage pointing to something perhaps more nefarious, or if it's the face of the once-forgotten but newly-remembered hero of the treasury, Alexander Hamilton, that's thanks to Broadway and Disney+, plus Alexander Hamilton being pictured on the $10 bill, or if it's Dave Ramsey and his reminders that cash is king. Conversations regarding currency are at an all-time high. Wait, whom are we kidding we listen to the money talk every day? It's always been this way, hasn't it? There's always something there to remind us about our concerns for currency. Today, in our Kingdom Encounter, we're going to see that a coin is not simply a coin. The coin is much, much more. When Matthew chapter 22, verse 15 begins, we find the beginning of a nefarious plot against Jesus. In verse 15, the Pharisees go to plot together how they can trap Jesus in what he says. The Pharisees, who are they again? Well, these are Jewish religious separatists. They're teachers of the law, the Old Testament law, who really hold their opinions Their own opinions and their own writings higher than the Old Testament scriptures which they should be teaching. Why do they not like Jesus? Jesus is the enemy. He's not like them. He's the Son of God, the living Word of God, and has come to bring the kingdom of heaven to earth. Jesus is not part of the religious establishment. The Pharisees are plotting together how they might trap Jesus in what he says. So they send their disciples to Jesus, along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful, and teach the way of God in truth, and defer to no one, for you are not partial to any. The Pharisees send their followers to Jesus. Why didn't the brave, brave Pharisees go to Jesus themselves? They hate Jesus but they don't want this to come back on their heads. So they send their followers to Jesus along with a group referred to as the Herodians. Who are the Herodians? As the name suggests, these are supporters of Herod. Why is this important? But one of the writers in the old pulpit commentary, and this is one that you've heard me mention before, my great-grandfather has these commentaries in his library, and I inherited them. One of the writers summed up this scripture regarding the Pharisees, their followers, and the Herodians. The two bodies hated one another, but made now an unholy alliance for the purpose of attacking Jesus. Hatred, like poverty makes men acquainted with strange companions." These are two bitter enemies of one another. They're now joined together against one whom they hate even more, Jesus. These two groups are preparing to ask a question, but they've got to introduce the question. Listen to their introduction. Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any. Oh, that's good. That's good. Listen to that mock respect that they're showing Jesus. Isn't that nice? They are shining Jesus on. They ask Jesus this question. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it lawful to give a poll tax to Caesar or not? Tell us what you think. Is it lawful to give this poll tax to Caesar? Tell us, we want to know. And in verse 18, we see Jesus' response. Jesus perceives their malice and says, Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? Jesus sees their malice. Malice is is quite a word, isn't it? It, (laughs) Malice, uh, the Oxford Dictionary defines malice as the intention to do evil, so I look at the word malice as evil or hate with legs. It's an active, active evil. Jesus responds to this question directly, which is different than how he was approached. He is straightforward. Why are you testing me, you hypocrites? You know when you use a word like hypocrite, it, it, it's hard to, it's hard to take that one back. Why is this a test according to Jesus? Well, here's the situation. These two groups, the Pharisees and the Herodians, the Pharisees, they hate foreign domination and were opposed to paying tax to what they considered a heathen nation, Rome. And the Herodians, on the other hand, they they bowed to the supremacy of Rome. Even though they were Israelites, they were not nationalists. So regardless of how Jesus answers this question, he will offend one of these parties. If Jesus supports this foreign tax, as do the Herodians, some might question his messiahship, his allegiance to God. If Jesus says that this tax is unlawful, like the Pharisees would say, Jesus could be arrested for sedition. He he could be branded a danger to Rome. So Jesus responds, and he says, Show me the coin used for the poll tax. And they bring him a denarius. Someone in the group brings him a coin of the realm, a denarius. And we've seen the denarius before. It's a coin, and it's in Matthew chapter 20, it's a day's worth of wage for the workers in the vineyard. So Jesus says to the group. He says, whose likeness and inscription is on this? Whose picture is on the money? Well, they say to Jesus, Caesar's. It's not unlike our money. On one side of the coin, you would see the the head of Tiberius with his name in Latin, Tiberius Caesar, son of the divine Augustus, filius Augustus. And on the other side, a seated female figure with the Latin inscription for the term chief priest. So Jesus says to them, when he asks them whose likeness and inscription is on this coin, and when they reply to Jesus, Caesar, then Jesus replies, then render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's one of the most well-known and often quoted verses in the New Testament, render to Caesar or give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God's. And Matthew tells us in verse 22 that after hearing this, they were amazed and leaving Jesus, they went away. Why are they amazed? The point of all of this is, This is about much more than simply a coin. It's not a question of currency. It's a question of allegiance. What did the followers of the Pharisees and the Herodians understand Jesus to say? There is a prominent evangelical theologian, seminary professor, and author named Wayne Grudem, He co founded the Council on Biblical Manhood and Womanhood and served as the general editor of the ESV Study Bible, the one which some of you perhaps are looking at today. In 2010, Dr. Grudem wrote a book entitled Politics According to the Bible, in which he addresses this passage in Matthew chapter 22. Grudem writes, This is a remarkable statement because Jesus shows that there are to be two different spheres of influence, one for the government and one for the religious life of the people of God. Some things, such as taxes, belong to the civil government, and this implies that the church should not try to control these things. On the other hand, some things belong to people's religious life, and this implies that civil government should not try to control those things. What is an example of things which are Caesar's? The coin. The acceptance and use of a coin admits to Caesar's earthly reign. And the irony of the situation is this. This is Roman coinage. This is not Jewish currency. At this time, the Jews had no mint of their own. They had to use Rome's. Israel is no longer an independent nation at this time. That's quite ironic, considering all these arguments that we're hearing today in Matthew 22. Another example of something that would be considered Caesar's, the legitimacy of taxation. According to Grudem... With this passage in Matthew 22, Jesus endorsed the legitimacy of paying taxes to a civil government. For the coin that he held had Caesar's inscription, and that coin was used for paying the tax. Grudem also references Paul's word to the Christians in Rome from Romans chapter 13, verse 6 and 7. For the same reason you also pay taxes, for the authorities are ministers of God, attending to this very thing. Pay to all what is owed to them, taxes to whom taxes are owed, revenue to whom revenue is owed, respect to whom respect is owed, honor to whom honor is owed. Grudem gives some more insight regarding these differences between Old Testament theocracy And New Testament and post New Testament governments. Grudem says Jesus did not specify any list of things that belonged to each category, but the mere distinction of these two categories had monumental significance for the history of the world. It signaled the endorsement of a different system from the laws for the nation of Israel in the Old Testament. With regard to Old Testament Israel, the whole nation was a theocracy in that God was the ruler of the people. The laws were directly given to Israel by God, rather than being decided upon by the people or a human king, and the whole nation was considered God's people. Grudem goes on to say that in Jesus' statement about God and Caesar, he established the broad outlines of a new order in which the things that are God's are not to be under the control of the civil government or Caesar. Such a system is far different than the Old Testament theocracy That was used for the people of Israel. Jesus' new teaching implies that all civil governments, even today, should give people freedom regarding the religious faith they follow or choose not to follow and regarding the religious doctrines they hold and how they worship God. Wayne Grudem's book, Politics According to the Bible, is a very helpful resource. We've asked the question, which things are Caesar's, well, what things are God's? What did Moses say in Deuteronomy chapter 6, verse 4? Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God, the Lord is one. Love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength. Everything is God's. One can still be a follower of God and still be a citizen of a sovereign nation. One can still be a follower of Christ but must still obey civil laws of the land. And when Jesus shared these words of Scripture in Matthew 22, I don't believe the point that he was making had anything to do with persecution, or even the fear or the threat of persecution. It's not even really about a coin. It's about those two different spheres of influence, one for the government and one for the religious life of the people of God the followers of the pharisees and the herodians in their own words of flattery when they were paying jesus false respect they were actually telling the truth there in verse 16 they say to jesus you are truthful and teach the way of god in truth and defer to no one for you are not partial to any you know when we go far enough in the new testament we get to the 19th chapter of the book of Revelation and we see the crucified and risen Jesus as the warrior and ruler. He's been given the title in Revelation chapter 19 verse 16, King of Kings and Lord of Lords. When the heavens open and we see Jesus sitting on the white stallion ready to make war, he's readying to make war on the nations. Well, why is Jesus making war on the nations? This is a war that's actually pointed to way back in the Old Testament in Psalm 2. Psalm 2 opens with a question. Why are the nations in an uproar and the peoples devising a vain thing? The kings of the earth take their stand and the rulers take counsel together against the Lord and against his anointed, the anointed the Messiah, God the Son. And the Lord scoffs at these kings of the earth. God the Father tells God the Son, I will surely give the nations as your inheritance and the very ends of the earth as your possession. You shall break them with a rod of iron. You shall shatter them like earthenware. In Psalm 2, God the Father gives a warning to the kings of the earth. He says, Do homage to the Son. That he may not become angry and you perish in the way, for his wrath may soon be kindled. How blessed are all who take refuge in him! At the end of the day, who's really sitting on the throne? Are the nations really in control? Are the kings of the earth really in control in 2020? And now flash forward to Revelation chapter 19 when the heavens open and we see Jesus sitting on the white stallion ready to make war, war on the nations. Jesus is referred to not only as King of Kings and Lord of Lords, but also the one whom (laughs) the Pharisees and the Herodians referred to as true. In Revelation 19, we see that Jesus is referred to as the one who is called faithful and true. Jesus is faithful and true. And these enemies in Matthew chapter 22 say to Jesus, You are truthful and teach the way of God in truth. Jesus did teach the way of God. But more than that, Jesus is the way to God. And that's the truth. And the truth of the matter is this. On the night of the Last Supper, Jesus was trying to prepare his disciples for what is to come. And in in John chapter 14, Jesus tells his disciples, Do not let your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. I'm true believe also in me. In my Father's house are many dwelling places. If it were not so, I would have told you, for I go to prepare a place for you. If I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you to myself, that where I am, there you may be also. And you know the way where I'm going. He's just told the disciples, if you believe in God, believe also in me. I'm telling you the truth. And Thomas, oh, we can relate to Thomas, Thomas full of doubts. Thomas says to Jesus, Lord, we we don't know where you're going. How do we know the way? And Jesus says, I am the way. I am the truth and I am the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. We can trust Jesus to be truthful, truthful when all the voices around us fill us with fear and paranoia in the living of these days, when we see all the nations rage. Jesus is the way to God, and that's the truth. And the truth of the matter is this. Everyone needs salvation because we've all sinned. The price and the wage of our sin is death. But Romans 6 tells us that the free gift of God is eternal life through Christ Jesus our Lord. Uh, Jesus, by dying on the cross, paid the price of the wages of our sin. God showed us his great love by sending Jesus to die for us while we were still sinners. That's Romans chapter 5, verse 8. And if you and I can come to the place that we understand that as sinners we deserve death, and that we need a Savior. And if we can step past our pride to trust in Jesus being the only one, that's capital O, the only one who could die for us, if we confess our sin and our need for him, if we trust in that, and we have the belief, the faith, that Jesus can pull all of this off, this brings us into a relationship of peace with God. Romans chapter 5, verse 1 reads this, Therefore, since we have been made right in God's sight by faith, we have peace with God because of what Jesus Christ, our Lord, has done for us. Jesus is faithful and true.